Ladies and gentlemen, please do welcome to the next episode of my Save Bet show. And it gives me a great pleasure and it's the utmost privilege to have Virginia McDowell as our guest today. I believe that Virginia is so well known within the industry and beyond that she doesn't really require any introduction. But let me just say that back in 2009, the Casino Journal magazine selected her as the gaming executive of the year. So that's the caliber of the person we have uh, the pleasure and privilege of dealing with today from 2007. To 2016, she was the CEO of Isle of Capri Casinos, and these days she's serving, and that's why this episode of the podcast is even closer to my heart than usual, she is serving on Entain's board as one of its non-executive directors. Uh, welcome, Virginia. It's, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for accepting the invitation. Good morning, Martin. It is absolutely a pleasure to, to be on your podcast and, and quite frankly, to have the opportunity to chat with you. You're so you're so busy with what you're doing these days that, that you know, I don't I don't see you often enough. That's a shame, and we'll have to. I'll have to redeem myself, and we will have to fix all this. But let's, if I may, you know, without any further ado, and necessarily or unnecessarily, rather, gilding the lily, let me delve into the questions. And the first one, I believe, is right down your alley. Hopefully, you will agree with me, Virginia, because uh, it will focus on being a woman in what is still perceived as very much the man's world. We've talked about your role at the top of Isle of Capri casinos, having been the only female president and CEO of a major traded gambling company. Of course, these days, uh, our own CEO, our own CEO, Yetta Nigord Anderson, is uh, symbolically following in your footsteps. So first question, if I may, in your view, what are the distinct qualities a female leader is bringing to the table at the highest level of management. I think, I think one of the things, when you analyze uh, corporations, organizations that, that make a commitment to diversity, and, and it's important that you talk about making a commitment from a cultural perspective. So you hear the tone, or you hear the phrase tone at the top all the time. Tone at the top is huge. And so it has to start with your CEO, it has to start at your boardroom, it has to start at your C-suite. Um, but it's something that you have to live and breathe, something that has to uh, permeate the organization from a cultural perspective. And, and one of the reasons why it's so important, and there have been many, many, many studies about this, but board composition, C-suite composition, that embraces diversity of thought, and, and that is very important. Uh, and then the varying perspectives makes a, a vital difference in an organization's understanding, not only of the issues at stake, but believe it or not, getting them done. So a lot of studies have been done that, that companies that have women at the very highest levels are more productive. And, and, and so it, it reflects whether in the stock price or, or whatever it might be, um, but having that diversity of thought uh, is critically important in terms of being able to elevate companies. Absolutely, and I would dare suggest that at least uh, in the recent years, more and more women have been coming through the ranks within the gambling industry to 
take on senior roles at the same time it would still appear appear to be the case if i may use my own phrase that i use at the beginning of the podcast that that, that the, the industry is still very much perceived as a men's world if not an old man's club so you've been clearly at the forefront of trying to transform this through organizations such as global game and women so do you think which one of those two perceptions, i.e. women going through the ranks on, on a, a bigger and bigger scale, or the industry still being an old men's club, which one do you think prevails these days and uh, will it be changing further in the future? The answer is both. <laughs> it, it, it is still an old man's club. However, let, let's just talk about the perception of women in the gaming industry. Okay, so. Uh, we don't have a problem with women in the gaming industry. The industry is actually 50% female. And, and this has been demonstrated in studies that the American Gaming Association and other organizations have done going back decades. Um, the industry is generally 50% female. The problem is, is that we are, women are tremendously underrepresented in management. And, and the goal of Global Gaming Women, the issue that we face as an industry and, and, and what I have been trying to solve through GDW and other organizations such as the All in Diversity Index is making sure that women have the opportunity to advance their careers within organizations. And Global Gaming Women is building the next generation of female leaders in the gaming industry 10 years ago, when it was started by the American Gaming Association, we had a lot of research, resources that were provided by the AGA that gave us the ability to do very extensive resource or research projects and, and to work with companies across the United States. When I retired in 2016, I went to Jeff Freeman at the AGA and said, I think this would be better served as a nonprofit. And the AGA gave us the ability to pull Global Gaming Women out of the AGA, launch it with the support of the AGA as a nonprofit. And it gave us the ability, quite frankly, to reach out to a greater group of organizations. When we sat six years ago to devise our mission statement, we realized that education was at the core of it. And that what we really needed to do was provide women educational opportunities so that they could advance their careers within organizations at the same time that we work with those organizations to build programs within their companies that would accomplish the same goal. So we were going forward kind of on two paths. If you think about gaming in the United States, and Martin, you're familiar with this, I'm sure we'll talk about this later in the podcast. At the point that we started, relaunched Global Gaming Women, there was some legalized form of gaming in 48 out of 50 states. And, and so that was a tremendous opportunity to bring essentially an underserved, underrepresented 50% of the workforce into the industry. And so the educational programs that we set up were a tiered educational program that at one level taught these skills and, and went all the way up to our W program, which is more aimed at women who are vice presidents. And we teach things like uh, public speaking skills or, you know, handling confrontation. Uh, but when we sat there and we looked down our educational pyramid and we tried to figure out why we had so many women in the industry 
that were not even willing to take the leap. We realized part of it was confidence. And so we also work on confidence with women. It's a great book called The Confidence Code. That if, if, you know, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about it, I highly suggest it. But, but women are, are prey to what is called imposter syndrome. And, and they never think that they're good enough. They don't think that they're good enough to apply for a job. And we looked at line employees and why they don't make the move, first move, to be a supervisor. We couldn't figure out how we could help them and what we could do. And we realized when we started doing focus groups or talking to these women, we realized that one of the first things that's required of a company when someone is applying for supervisor is a resume. And how many line employees have a resume? So, so when you sit there and you talk about advancing women through the industry, you have to start with how do you provide the tools and the learning and the resources to women at the line employee level to take that first step into management? And then what do we need to do as global gaming women to help provide the tools to move on from there? Simultaneously, working with organizations for feminists, MGM started it, quite frankly, long before uh, we did. Jim Murren was a, a tremendous leader in diversity, equity, and inclusion. But working with organizations like the Seminoles in Florida, uh, who completely embraced this, and, and other organizations that say, "All right, now we're going to we're going to do the same thing. We're going to be aware of the need to provide opportunity for women in our organization." That is what changes all of this. And so we have seen through our lean in groups that we do, for example, and we measure productivity, we have seen that women who, who uh, participate in our lean-in groups um, move on, they move up. And, and part of that reason is that they have the resources that help them with confidence to take that step to the next level. So it's, it's happening much slower than I would like. Um, but I do believe that that which gets measured gets managed. And, and because of, of the all-in diversity index and other people that are looking at this progress in the industry of moving women uh, into management roles, um, it, it's, it, it's going to take a lot of hard work, but there is progress. And I'm sure that with you being one of the key driving forces behind it, we shall get there as an industry. I will most certainly look up that book, as I'm sure will will our will our audience, because indeed the topics of empowerment, if you will, and education will be permeated in this podcast. If I may move on to the next, but a topic that's very much intertwined with what we've already discussed. Uh, I have mentioned that uh, you serve as one of the non-executive directors at Entain, and you've always been very big on people. You chair Entain's environmental, social, and governments committee. So if for a few minutes, if we may talk about the people, and especially, or in particular, people during the pandemic. I hope you would mm -hmm. agree with me if I say that the pandemic has largely, if not completely, brought out the best in all of us in bringing the people together and also organizations help people to deal with. But the completely changed, completely revamped working environment, having faced a lot of adversity. So in your view, first of all, would you agree with what I've just said and feel free not to, but also secondly, that may be slightly controversial, what would be your take on 
the arguments of some that as a result of the pandemic, the old office, you know, being largely chained to your desk working model is outlived by now. I have, I have very strong feelings on this. Um, and uh, you obviously are very familiar with Bo Bernhard and the team at UNLV. Uh, through the Intain Foundation, uh, we work with them uh, and the IGI. Um, Bo Bernhard does a, a, an executive management uh, retreat, uh, which is one of the best, I think, in the United States, maybe the world, uh, where he gathers uh, executives together at an at a, um, uh, educational seminar in Lake Tahoe. And, and I think, that, you know, I've said this to, to Bo before, and I say it with love in my heart, he essentially locks them in a room for five years uh, and gives them big problems to solve. And as a result, um, there are big thinkers there, and uh, and they and they and they they do great things. The reason why I say that is that uh, this executive development program, at the point that that we realized in early two thousand or early twenty twenty, at the point that we realized that the pandemic was going to be here for a little bit, and, and life as we knew it in the brick-and-mortar gaming industry was going to change forever, um, Bo decided that he was going to do a series of conference calls with our global representation, and these are gaming executives from all over the world, and brainstorm. Uh, this is like skunk works. What, what's going to happen? The, the gaming industry is going to change forever. It's going to change in the short term. Uh, because of lockdowns and so on and so forth, how properties even succeed. But but then looking forward, what are we going to do in terms of changing the operations of brick and mortar to provide the safety of our guests and of our employees? I mean, even silly things. Like if you think about, and it's not silly, but if you think about Las Vegas and the big towers and, or the, the towers and hotels, You've been there. How many times are you jammed on an elevator with 22 people that are moving from floor to floor? How do you social distance them? I made a lot of friends Honestly. that way. Uh-huh. Well, so great. But, it, but it's one thing to sit there and say, oh, we're just going to put up plexiglass shields between the slot machines. But it's another thing to sit there and say, even at the heart of your core operations, if you can't move people from floor to floor in big Las Vegas hotels, how are we going to do this? And, and so it forced us, quite frankly, to look at our industry very differently. How are we going to succeed in the future? Happened, the same thing happened with Global Gaming Women. Um, a lot of what we were doing was face-to-face. We felt that interpersonal relationship was important, but we realized that we needed to move very quickly to a digital strategy so that we could reach women at home. And one of the things that I'm very proud about is Intain's absolutely rapid response uh, to keeping our operations running during the pandemic at the same time as a priority, keeping our people safe. And, and so most of NT's business, and we operate, Martin, you're probably more familiar at this point, but I think we're on, still on five continents and what, 30 yes, countries? Or, so, so just think, think about the, the massive responsibility of that of be, being able to or having to do that on a global basis uh, to to literally go from an, an in-work environment to an at-home environment, which 
meant either reconfiguring computers or shipping laptops or whatever it might be to five continents to keep our operations running. A little bit different with our brick and mortar, with our high street vending shops, they were closed by law um, in, in the UK and Belgium and Italy. Um, but when you were looking at our online operations, we shifted. And, and so then you look at, and we did it well in, in, a, in a phenomenally you know, quick time period. But then you look at, okay, did it work? So part of it is, you know, the tactical aspect of having to get the equipment and make changes as far as the, the you know, the computers, the website, the technology is concerned, but did it work? The answer is yes, it did. And so we were able to maintain our business globally by doing exactly what we had done. And, and we were able to do that for, quite frankly, a much longer time period than anyone thought. So I think the next part of your question is now things are opening back up again. People are feeling safe. We've come to the point globally that we understand that we are going to have to continue to deal with the pandemic for a long time. So how do you safely bring those people back to work? Or is the better question, how do you safely continue to guarantee that your company is going to succeed going forward, integrating all these different options? And, and I think what NTEAM did, uh, what we're in the process of doing, because it's fluid, I think that what NTEAM did is, is the way that every company should look at this going forward. And it is a hybrid model. And it's not, it's not absolute. And, and I think at this point, and, and again, it's fluid, but we kind of have four different models that, that you can come back to work. One is if you're in a customer-facing position, if you work for a high street betting shop, um, or in the U.S., if you work you know, on the casino floor, if you're a dealer at a brick-and-mortar company, you have to be there. I mean, there's, there's no way around that. You can't remotely be a dealer. Um, but if you, if you have a position that gives you the ability to continue to work but would benefit from socializing, then it may make sense that you come to work a few days a week. And, and so you have this, you have to be here, and then it would be good if you would be here. And then there's another model that we're putting in there that basically says you need to be, be here one day a week uh, for staff meetings just so that you can see people's faces. And, and then you can do 100% of your work from home. And, and so within those four, which is have to be there, be there three days a week, be there one day a week, you know, or one day a week every once in a while, or you never need to come back into the office, you're able to accommodate your entire workforce. And I think the most important thing is accommodation and, and not being absolute. So you have to do this. You have to be here. We've proven that, that that's not the case. And, and that is changing the world of how we work. So, so part of it is, is really just um, what do you need to do to provide for the safety of your employees? And what is the best way to move the organization forward? But our thought process has to change because the world has changed. And, and actually, people look at this as, some people look at this as a liability. I look at it as an opportunity. Absolutely, and I appreciate it. We've both been singing the praises of our own company, but I can vouch for the fact that Untaint's response to all the pandemic-related shenanigans 
have been nothing short of <clears throat> phenomenal and indeed from personal experience of lately been recruiting for roles in my team so if so anybody out there who would fancy working for me have the dubious pleasure then you'd be most welcome but <clears throat> that long story short the point <clears throat> i'm really trying to make is that the key question in all those interviews coming from the candidates is not necessarily about the remuneration packages it's about the flexibility around the, the working model so <clears throat> you're absolutely absolutely spot on well, I, I, also, I, I look at it. I look at it from from the point of view of, of my children as well. I have I have two children that are completely working remotely right now, and and one who who works remotely in, for a company in the U.S. in Europe when she chooses to travel. So so all, all of that opportunity is there. Uh, we just need to, to leverage it and and recognize that that it is an opportunity, but. It's a little bit different in the U.S. in the brick and mortar industry, in that there are certain jobs that I mean, you can't you can't be a waitress remotely, <laughs> you can't be a dealer remotely, and then it comes down and then it comes down to um, the problem that we're having right now with what they call the Great Resignation, which is now that employees have the option of online employment. Um, a lot of them are basically sitting there and saying, I don't want that front level service industry job anymore because I can get a job sitting at home, you know, working for another company. And, and so that's something that is a, a huge hurdle uh, that a lot of businesses are facing right now in the United States. We're going to have to continue to face. Perhaps that remote waitressing is an opportunity for another organization. I don't think it would be an opportunity for two of us or entertain. <laughs> but if I may move on to our next topic, and I will merge two into one, if I may. We've uh, on this podcast previously, and uh, most of them, if not all of them, are dear friends of both of us. We've talked abundantly with the likes of Bo Bernard, indeed, and, and Alan Feldman about... Um, about Las Vegas and Nevada. I still might be mispronouncing the word Nevada, but I'm doing my best. But you spend a lot of your career in Atlantic City. And of course, Atlantic City <clears throat> being a firm part of the Garden State of New Jersey, where me and the family reside. These days, they're the originator, if you will, at least in the United States, of the regulatory tethering model, i.e. companies such as Entain, <clears throat> When tackling the U.S. market, had to partner up with a local provider. So my first question will be whether you think that this model will carry on or whether it will ultimately change, whether more states will have drawn inspiration from the state of Tennessee or whether Tennessee will end up being an outlier with its mobile, or to put it American, mobile-only regulation. And then if I may add another question, because I believe they're very much interrelated, and to introduce it, it goes without saying that we are living <coughs> the time, not necessarily, I'm not sure whether it's a dream, but the time of the absolute sports betting bonanza in the United States. If even the likes of Hawaii, and I've heard couple i had a couple of days ago that even alaska's considering regulating sports betting so utah may actually end up as the outlier even if these if these states consider regulating then this is a clear proof to me that sports betting is here to stay and between now and perhaps the end of 23 24 
48, 49 states might have regulated. But my other question on top of the one about the tethering model, and as I've said, I believe they're very much intertwined, is what is your view on the long-term sustainability of the U.S. regulatory model and the U.S. sports betting markets themselves? Because can we really keep on the routine of offering one, two, three, five thousand so-called risk-free bets for much longer? Remember, in the United States, um, we, we basically have a model where the states are making the decisions. And, and based on what's happening in the U.S. right now with the U.S. Supreme Court and the influence of the Federalist Society, um, they're pushing states' rights more and more, which, which means states have the opportunity, which was guaranteed or, or, or um, a, a part of the Constitution to operate independently of the federal government because the states were supposed to be closer to the, the citizens and, and in that way knew what was best. And so you have states in the United States that, that are doing what they believe is best for their citizens. So let's talk about it from a gaming perspective. Part of it is, is um, regulatory relative to responsible gaming, and part of it is uh, revenue. Uh, and so when you're sitting there and looking at balancing state budget and being able to provide for your citizens, you look at ways of being able to raise revenue. Uh, we talked about a little while ago that, that at the point that I think, well, we just talked about that possibly changing, but good 48 states that have some type of legalized gaming, many of those states, it was a state lottery. Um, but, but you had riverboat gaming, you had commercial gaming, you had tribal gaming that, that uh, existed in the United States. And so the states made the decision if they were going to legislate gambling in some way, shape, or form. They made the decision that, that they were going to do this, in, in many cases, largely from a revenue perspective. We have a hole in our budget, and we can, we can provide legalized gaming to fill it, or we can provide different forms of legalized gaming to fill it. And so in the case of New Jersey, you had the opportunity to uh, introduce a new form of gaming uh, that would increase the revenue stream in New Jersey, therefore increase taxes, therefore give the state of New Jersey the opportunity to raise some revenue. It's interesting to me, as somebody who has worked in both commercial and, and uh, or destination and riverboat markets, that it doesn't matter whether you are a big casino in Atlantic City or you're a riverboat somewhere in the Midwest, but in some time, you have made a poor decision to build a restaurant or a showroom or something that, that takes up space in your building that didn't serve its purpose. It didn't work. So either the restaurant didn't work, the showroom didn't work, the bar didn't work, whatever it might be. And when I say it didn't work, it may be that when you look at it from a PL perspective, it just didn't make, it didn't make sense to sustain it anymore. So we're going to open the bar, but we can only open the bar on weekends when people are here. So we have this big space that's, open, that, that's empty five nights a week. Or we built one too many restaurants, and we had that space sitting there. And the initial conversations that I started having about sports betting when I joined the NT board in 2018 was in the United States at the point that PASPA was repealed to the extent that states um, provided the opportunity for sports betting. It provided a new revenue stream for all of these, these uh, properties, whether it was destination or regional, 
to utilize vacant space in their buildings that wouldn't take a lot of capital to improve, that would immediately improve their profitability and the profitability for the states. So to me, once PASPA was repealed, it was a no-brainer as far as bringing sports betting into gaming operations because you would increase the, the, you know, the profitability of the properties and therefore increase you know, state revenues as well. To me, it was a win-win. Um, the tethering aspect is a little bit different. Um, tethering, make sure, tethering and, and obviously geolocation, make sure that the residents within that state benefit from whatever the expanded uh, legislation is to or for gaming. So, so if you're going to, in New Jersey, take advantage of all of the space that existed in those Atlantic State casinos by providing a new regulated legal form of gaming, then the state legislature believed that the New Jersey residents should benefit from that. And therefore, they, they tethered the, the licenses to the existing properties, to so the existing properties would benefit from that. Tennessee doesn't have land-based gaming, doesn't have brick-and-mortar gaming. So for them to benefit in the, in the sports betting bonanza, we'll, we'll call it, the only way that they could participate was, was, was not to tether because they had nothing to tether to. And, and so I think, Martin, and I know that you're a lot closer to this in many ways than I am, what you're going to continue to see in the United States is a hybrid model that if a state has brick-and-mortar casinos, they want the brick-and-mortar casinos to benefit from that, and so they tether. And, and obviously, the brick-and-mortar casinos are a substantial lobby in the states, and so to the extent that there's a new legalized form of gaming, they want it. They, they, want, to, they want it. They want to own it. They want to profit from it, and they don't want any, anyone else to come in uh, to take advantage of it. And that's why the skins you know, are generally associated with a property. It's kind of like, all right, we're going to make sure you get yours, and then we're going to offer some skins so that you continue to, to, to benefit from, from the process. Um, so I think that you're going to continue to see that across the United States, a, a, a hybrid model of, of tethering, not tethering, uh, based on, on what the state is doing. And then you also have to, have to consider in many states, or in some states, uh, that that it's going to be a conversation with the lottery as well, and and so now you bring the lottery into the conversation, and and that's going to change what each state does. So so I mean, good news and bad news is in the United States you're essentially dealing with fifty different governments. Just as I mean, if, if Martin, you know, you and I are talking about Western Europe. Just pretend that, that it's the same as dealing with, you know, Western Europe. It, you're dealing with 50 different governments in the United States. They're probably going to make 50 different decisions. So I know I am part of that. What did I miss? Now, you haven't missed anything. The, the other point that you've mentioned I was going to call out on top of those 50 governments are, of course, the tribes and their governance and governmental structures. And then it's a no-brainer to deal with them in their own right. And indeed, so learning all, the, all this nitty-gritty detail is part of my self-Americanization. You touched upon the buzzword of late that's uh, and i'm delighted to report that gaining ever more prominence throughout the industry but crucial and critically also 
beyond the industry, and that is responsible gambling. We're filming this for the record on the 25th of April. So we're filming it at the point whereby the Responsible Gambling Awareness Month, i.e. March, came to an end, but we are very close to the mental health awareness month so between between the two and responsible gambling at least that, that's one of my missions to put it very firmly on the map of mental health so that it's no longer treated as a little silo that only pertains to that shady gambling industry so really what i'm trying to say is that during the month of march a number of operators and don't get me wrong this is not meant to be a criticism you would have typically come across a lot of grandstand announcement how much money is being spent on this course and and that course but Yet, in your view, Virginia, and hopefully this is not a loaded question, as an industry with particular focus on the United States, but we may want to look at it globally as well, do you think that we are already doing enough to protect our customers? And if not, what it is that we need to change further? Where do we need to further step up? Um, uh, yeah, not a loaded question, but... Just an absolutely critical question for the industry, Martin, because I really do believe that, that sustainability is going to define the future of the industry. So let's talk about sustainability from an intained perspective, um, because obviously we do, through our BetMGM partnership, have significant U.S. operations. So how do we look at sustainability at Intain? Um, I think I think what you were asking as far as kind of Responsible Gaming Month and uh, window dressing um, is, are we actually walking the talk, okay? So do we sit there during Responsible Gaming Month and say, yes, we're committed to responsible gaming. We put some posters up in hallways. Uh, we do an event. We have a town hall, whatever it might be. But has it truly changed the culture of the organization? Is an RG culture embedded in the organization? Let's go back to Insane or Sustain and Team and our Sustain platform, our sustainability platform. So for us, it's operating in reg regulated markets. It is making sure that we take the lead, take the lead, put forward as an organization for responsible gaming. It means the highest standards of corporate governance that we hold ourselves to. And then investing in our people and community. So, so what does that mean? Okay. You had mentioned mental health, and I think my personal opinion is we are in a mental health crisis globally as a result of the pandemic, but the pandemic didn't cause it. The pandemic was the tipping point. And part of the reason why is that mobile devices, our phones, our iPads, has, has basically <laughs> I know that this is like way off topic for this podcast, but I'll, I'll try to land the plane. But, but for about a decade, we have given people the opportunity not to socialize, not to interact with each other, and then to sit there and look at the world that we've created online through Facebook, through Instagram, whatever it may be. And so we, we as a world have, have come more in as a result of mobile devices and the ability to, to you know, not have to socialize. Um, and then on top of it, uh, we have a global pandemic and people are scared and they're afraid. And now there's war in Ukraine and they're scared and they're afraid. 
and mobile or mental health is a huge issue right now. And part of the problem is, at least in the United States, and I'm sure it's the same in other countries, is mental health is stigmatized. And so we don't say that it is brave to ask for help. We say it is weak to ask for help, and then we don't provide it. So if you extend that, for example, to responsible gaming, um, a lot of people look at this as a stigma. The vast majority of people globally participate in the gaming industry as a form of entertainment, and they do it safely. There's a very small percentage of people who don't. And so much of what we're doing at Enteen with our RG platform and so much, Martin, of what you're doing with Enteen US and, and the, the work that we're doing with Harvard, the work that we're doing with Seton Hall, uh, the work we're doing with the National Council on Responsible Gaming, uh, IGI, we mentioned earlier, Epic Risk Management, all of these things we're doing to make sure that we are having an open and honest conversation about responsible gaming in the United States and putting the tools in place to recognize what we need to do. But mental health has to be a huge, a huge part of that. And, and, and the challenge is, how do you make people understand that, that asking for help and providing help is great and is necessary as opposed to you know, it's something that we have most certainly landed that plane. I believe we're talking not even Boeing 787, but more like 797, which is yet to be designed and uh, and developed. And absolutely, those two, mental health and responsible gambling, they're very much intertwined. And to your point about uh, people spending their even lives swiping on their phones. I'm sure that 10 years from now, if she plucks up the courage to watch it, I usually bring our little one, Isabella, to this podcast. She might be horrified with all the references to her, but I can guarantee you she just turned 18 months. It's really flying by. But she's one of the most efficient and nimble swipers I've ever seen at that age because she's seen her parents do it and everybody else around her do it. So, yes, this is a crisis that we do need to address and hopefully Entain will continue being a part of it. In a similar vein, before I move on to the final bonus question and before I give Virginia her 60 seconds to wrap it all up, you have always been, besides being big on people, You've been, well, for that reason, you've been very big on community service. You've given a number of, of talks and you sit on a number of boards and advisory boards. We will not go through them one by one because then, yet again, we would spend days here. It would be good fun, but I suppose the audience might not necessarily enjoy it as much as we would. So, in a couple of sentences, if you don't mind, what is the most gratifying part of having taken on an exercise in these roles while working with people for the people, a bit of both? Uh, so we have, we have to go back to my parents. Um, neither of my parents graduated from high school, and they were both extraordinarily smart people who had to you know, leave to, to help support their families at the time. Um, my father went on to become the director of the library at the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin, uh, which at one point was one of the largest newspapers in the United States. My mother 
became an entrepreneur who started multiple uh, retail-based businesses. Uh, they were my first mentors. They were my inspiration. I learned, you know, they were my foundation. My father was, uh, was and, I, and I'm, I'm not getting political here, I am stating fact. Uh, but my father was a Republican who moved to a very Republican district outside of Philadelphia when I was about four. And he decided that, that we needed to have a different dialogue. And he decided to become a Democrat in an extraordinarily Republican district uh, outside of Philadelphia. And he decided to run for office. And being the oldest of four, I got to tag along with dad. And, and I got to learn the political world first time or firsthand. And I, I got to learn um, uh, strategy and tactics. And I also learned how to talk to people because my father would go knock on doors and, and I would go with him. And it, it was amazing to me because it was such an uphill battle. And I used to say to my father, why, why are you doing this? Why are you banging your head against the wall? And my dad said to me when I was five or six years old, um, I believe that I can make a difference. And I, I believe that I can help improve. And I said, but how much of a difference will it be? And he said, well, I can't make a difference in the world, but I can make a difference in my little corner of the world. And, and, and that's kind of my foundation for all that I do relative to people, relative to nonprofits. How can I leave a positive footprint on the world? How can I, how can I lend my time and my talents and my treasures to organizations that can change the world for the better? Um, and and that I've done that through organizations that I obviously have worked in. Uh, I, you know, as a as a as a COO, as a CEO, as a whatever it might be. Uh, I always focused on people. What is the how do how do I help build the organization from a people perspective? Um, but I do the same thing with the boards that I sit on. Uh, how can I help the world be a, a better place with my contribution? What footsteps to follow in, and you most certainly, most certainly have one final, that's the usual bonus question, because I'd be remiss in my duties to American football if I didn't ask this one. You mentioned the great and beautiful city of Philadelphia, and... The audience might or might not know that Virginia is one of those undaunted Eagles fans, of course, as the Pets fans amongst us will remember only too traumatically, Super Bowl 52 champions. So my question, I suppose, is very simple. At the same time, it might be difficult to answer. How do you reckon the Eagles will do in the next season? They have not necessarily covered themselves in glory last time around. This is actually a real interesting question right now because the draft is this week. Um, and, Indeed. and so, and it's a real interesting draft, uh, because it's a very weak year for quarterbacks. And so you're going to have a lot of people, Philadelphia has, has two picks in the first picks in the draft. There's, but not, not until lower. And so the, so there's going to be a lot of, uh, folks taking, uh, non-traditional, uh, players because usually the quarterbacks would go early. But because it's not a good year for quarterbacks, they're going to be taking other players, defensive players, wide receivers, and so on and so forth. So, so it's, really, it's really going to be interesting to see because when you look at all the mock drafts, uh, they're, all, they're all over the map in terms of, of what's going to happen. 
and the Eagles could actually trade their their drafts in the in the first round uh, as well. And so Eagles are in a rebuilding mode right now. They've made the determination that Jalen Hurts is their quarterback. Um, anything that I've seen in terms of strategy for the mock drafts has been they're going to look for defensive players. They're going to look for a wide receiver. Um, but who knows? The most important thing is that we are still in rebuilding. Okay. And Eagles fans are going to be either happy or unhappy, no matter what happens. So they're Eagles fans. <laughs> so, so, so the link will be filled when they're playing at home. And, uh, and I think that most Eagles fans recognize that, that we're not going to cover ourselves in glory necessarily this year. Uh, but we're going to have, based on our draft picks this year or how we trade them, and what's going to happen in the next couple of years, um, we're going to have a pretty solid team in the future. So we'll see, right? Indeed, we shall wish the Eagles management the best of luck at the draft. I only wish that my wife knew as much about American football and appreciated as much, especially on Sundays, as Virginia does. The final part of the podcast is, and I will put a time frame on this one, I will give Virginia 60 seconds to deliver her key messages, uh, anything you might have said already, or any other messages you would have for the audience. It's all yours, please. Uh. Well, diversity, equity, and inclusion continues to be uh, what is most important to me uh, and providing opportunities uh, for women and for minorities. Uh, we just this year formed a, a very strong diversity, equity, and inclusion committee at Global Gaming Women. It's obviously a focus and intain as well. And, and so to the extent that this is what I spend my time on, uh, I do believe that we need to continue to provide opportunities uh, for women and minorities to advance in the gaming industry. I do believe uh, that companies are going to have to actually put their best foot forward as it relates to responsible gaming, because that is going to be the foundation for what the states decide to do with sports betting and online gaming in the future. Uh, and I also believe that when you look at the Eagles, um, there are certain aspects of the Eagles that you just can't discount, which is they have the best fans in football. And then, you know, you just kind of take it from there. And I'm sure the Eagles and their fans will continue flying high. Thank you very much, Virginia. Thank you for being on the show, ladies and gentlemen. We've had the extraordinary pleasure to have one of the greatest quarterbacks of the gaming industry, male or female, on our show today. So thank you very much for your attention. My name is Martin Lichka. I'm hosting the Safe Bet Show, and I shall see you next time. Mm -hmm.